Welcome to the Carmilla podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma. In the first year of Brexit and a century after the partition of Ireland, I'm in conversation with special guests exploring contemporary Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of history, politics, art and theology. And this week, I am delighted that my guest is Christine Bell, Professor of Constitutional Law and Assistant Principal at Edinburgh University. Those roles barely scrape the surface of her many achievements. And in our conversation, we cover Brexit, peace treaties, human rights, and the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Well, for me, it achieved a formal end to the violence. I think it's easy to dismiss that, but it's a huge thing. Brexit, the way it's designed, it's going to be micro-negotiation after micro-negotiation all of the times. So we will be still doing Brexit for the next 10 years at least. Hello and welcome to the Corrie podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma, and with me today is Professor Christine Bell. Here's a selection of some of her CV. She's a professor of constitutional law at Edinburgh University and a co-director of the Global Justice Academy and a member of the British Academy. She is a founder member of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, which was established under the terms of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And in 1999, she was a member of the European Commission's Committee of Experts on Fundamental Rights. Her education has taken in Cambridge and Harvard and Queen's University and Ulster University. Christine Bell, welcome to the Corrie podcast. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. That's uh, very good of you to give us your time. Where are you talking to us from, Christine? Uh, I'm in my office in Edinburgh, which is in the old college, which is the oldest part of the university. And I look out over the Edinburgh skyline as I speak. That's a great suffering. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you would want to add to the list, the partial list of the accomplishments and um, professional qualifications and associations that I mentioned? Uh, no. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, like it's just, you know, it's clear hearing you speak that you're originally from Northern Ireland. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, yes, I was born and grew up in Belfast. Um, I'm of an age that uh, my life sort of in my early years coincided with the start of the Troubles. So, um, I went away to university for three years, came back, trained as a barrister, and then went away to the States for a couple of years. And then I worked in Queen's and University of Ulster for nearly 20 years collectively. I'm a person of faith, and I, I would have attended Fitzroy Presbyterian Church and then secondary. And I was very active in peace work as a teenager. And then as I moved to being a lawyer, and also wanted more structural changes, I became very active in human rights work uh, and in trying to sort of understand how human rights could be part of framing a solution to the co conflict as we were all moving into the peace process. Um, would you say that it was growing up during the Troubles um, that inspired you both in terms of a person of faith and in terms of somebody with interest in um, law and legal change and human rights change, would you say that it was the troubles that sparked that kind of that necessity and urge for you to follow those routes? Yes, I mean, it, it really clearly was. Um, uh, I, I suppose I grew up understanding what we were living in as completely normal. 
and not really knowing that it was strange and that everyone didn't have this. So it was as a teenager, which for me, um, I suppose I remember some points. I remember actually the first real atrocity that really sank home and it was partly because I got up early and the radio was on, was actually the Le Mans bomb. And I remember hearing about these awful scenes and thinking, what what is this? What's happening? And then I sort of became a teenager and the hunger strikes were on and that was a very politicised time when, unlike other times, people were sort of talking about what was going on and what their positions were. For me, it was a slow realisation that life wasn't normal. And in fact, I remember stunningly at about 18 talking to my mum and mum saying, oh, I still think of Northern Ireland as not having the troubles and as a temporary thing. And I remember looking at her in astonishment and thinking, oh, I don't really see any before. I, I don't know anything different. So I think for me, I became motivated to say, and in fact, it was almost that cognitive dissonance of going, why is nobody talking about this or doing anything about it because I would say that you know that my friendships and my life circles this it wasn't really a big point of discussion we just lived our lives yeah. I mean that of course is a privileged existence having said that there's lots of ways in which the troubles and fear and threat encroached on our lives but again we tended to minimize and dismiss them partly because we weren't as, as much risk as some other people was it the same for you in communities of faith that the troubles seemed to exist outside of that? Or were you part of a community of faith that was quite engaged in discussion? Well, it's interesting you mention that. Because, so my grandfather had been the minister of, of Fitzroy and he took a heart attack in the late sort of mid to late 70s and had to retire unexpectedly. And that led to Ken Newell, who's quite well known coming. And actually, one of the first things I remember about the Troubles was I used to go to church. I used to spend all day Sunday going to churches of various sorts. And I spent, I would go on Sunday evening as a special treat on a Sunday evening. I would go with my mum to the evening service from the age of about 10, even though I didn't understand any of it. <laughs> and Ken came and I must have been somewhere between eight and 10. And he told a story where he jokingly said, if you're stopped at a roadblock and asked about being Protestant or Catholic, you'll say, you'll guess who the roadblock is and answer that. And it was the first time I'd heard people mention Protestant Catholic. And I asked my mum, I knew I was Presbyterian, but I didn't know which that was. And I had to ask her, what am I, Protestant or Catholic? Like, what? I know I'm Presbyterian. And she laughed and she said, nobody in the world would believe a child in Northern Ireland had to ask that. But actually I did. And, it was, and it's, it's because my identity was really Presbyterian. Um, and I didn't actually know these other terms, really. Uh, but actually, there was consternation in the church. And I look back now and realise that consternation was because he was talking about the sectarian issue. But you know what people were actually talking about? They were saying, it's very wrong that the minister suggested that you should lie at a roadblock. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I remember actually me hearing all the discussion on the chat because people were judging the new minister as well, you know, and for me, obviously, they were judging against the person that had been there before, who was my grandfather, who who did have his own relationship to politics and, and the situation, but would have been a very different ministry and position from Cairns. Mm. So, um, so that, so, so actually Fitzroy was one of the communities of faith where these things were talked about and where Ken Newell's ministry was very much about, about addressing and being an active, trying to be actively engaged as a person of faith and a congregation of faith 
in what was going on around us. I know that you're an expert in all manners of peace negotiations and agreements all around the world. And then obviously there's the one um, for here called alternatively the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement. On a global level, as you look at the variety of peace agreements that you're familiar with, what is the distinctiveness really of the Good Friday Agreement? Well, first of all, it would be interesting to people to know how many peace processes there have been Mm. from 1990. So we have this massive database where we've collected peace agreements and we've actually tried to count peace processes, which is a complicated thing when you get into it. Um, So there's been about 150 peace processes. And to give you an idea of that, there's about 200 countries in the world. So it's actually many places have had peace processes and peace agreements. If we count peace agreements, it's not just being the main agreement, but all the little agreements it takes you to get there. And then all the agreements it takes you to implement. So we know this very well from Northern Ireland. So we have the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement, um, whose name is actually the multi-party agreement reached in negotiations on the 10th of April 1998, which is a bit of a That's the proper name if you're going to cite it in a law journal. So, and there's um, agreements, many agreements to implement, peace agreements after. So the St Andrews Agreement is as significant in some senses and what it did as the Belfast Agreement, although people don't know it so well. There's 1,800 agreements when we count agreements on that broad suggestion. So what that tells you is, um, I think we've produced a statistic that says on average it takes 36 agreements. Now this is a silly statistic because of course all processes are different. But I think what it has really taught me is that trying to exit from conflict takes many years and the central agreement is, is often only one moment and one slice. So it takes a lot of time and agreement to get to that agreement. And it takes a lot of time and agreement to get beyond that agreement. The other interesting thing is, in some senses, not how different our agreement is, but how similar. So quite often, actually, people write to me and they particularly write to me about Bosnia and they say, you've put the Bosnian peace agreement in your database and it's not a peace agreement at all. It was a sort of agreement to disagree. And I always want to write back and say, they're all like that. They're all, they are all like that. So people don't so much solve their problems as try to carry their problems into a more peaceful way of continuing to resolve them. And that's, I think, very much maybe been a hard lesson for people in Northern Ireland, including me, that it it wasn't a solution, but the solution has to be worked on almost every day and every year since then. So we still talk about being in the peace process, even though we're 20 years beyond the agreement. That's fascinating. Um, Would you say that there are particular ways where trying to take something from one peace agreement and apply it elsewhere can be troubling, even though I hear you saying that lots of them have very deep similarities in terms of how much of compromised documents they are? Uh, Yeah, so one of the things we can actually do with our data that's proving fascinating is we have all these new artificial intelligence ways of looking at comparing texts. So we can actually see where phrases have gone. Um, And for example, the phrase parity of esteem was picked up in the Philippines process, and we kind of can find out some of the reasons why that happened. Um, So things are borrowed across, but they're never borrowed in a simplistic way. They're more translated across, so people will use ideas and rework them to their own context. And that's, in fact, what we did. Um, So, for example, there's a big discussion around, well, everybody wrote a truth commission into the peace agreement, saying somewhere like Nepal, 
but are the conditions there whereby a realistic discussion can be had around how to deal with the past and these sorts of things and in fact I think dealing with the past is probably one of the most difficult issues in any conflict Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much suffering there and because there's so much compromise in peace agreements. When the Commission um, on the past wrote their report, you know, for Northern Ireland, they were recommending a legacy commission and people will be familiar with Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that language that was used in South Africa and some other places. What would you want to add to the to the public discussion about commissions? I know that Joe Biden had said um, that he would be interested in considering a truth commission regarding enslavement in the United States. What do you, when you hear commissions being discussed in public, what do you want to contribute to that in terms of what the imagination of what they can achieve could be? I think I would sort of say maybe two or three things. Firstly, that the commission won't be a panacea. There was language that actually emerged in the Haas discussions that didn't come to anything in Northern Ireland that I really like, which was not dealing with the past or transitional justice or legacy, but contending with the past. And I think once you use that phrase, you realise that we always contend with the past and we always have to contend with the past. And we just contend with it in different ways and using different vehicles at different times. So then the question doesn't become, is a truth commission a good or thing or a bad thing? But it becomes, can it do something useful at this time? in helping us to contend with the past. And hopefully, I do now see processes as more incremental and think that maybe we could approach them better if we understood that some things are possible in one moment that aren't possible in the next minute. And maybe what we do is sort of try to always put something in place that helps us better able to resolve our differences in the future. Um, So... If we're going to contend with the past in this moment through a truth commission or some sort of commission like that, it won't settle all issues around the past for all time and all people. And new generations will even have new questions and issues. But will it? how can we use it to leave us in a better place to deal with these issues constructively in the future? To me, that should drive design and the decision making rather than this focus on this commission now we're somehow going to put an end to the pa- dealing with the past. And in light of that, then, as you think of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement, I w- I'll forget the proper term that you spoke about it as. I know that like the uh, the kind of broad brushstrokes is that Catholic or nationalist communities might call it the Good Friday Agreement and Protestant or unionist communities might call it the Belfast Agreement. But in light of that agreement, um, what would you say that that achieved for the moment that it was written in? And what would you consider are some of the new questions emerging now? Well, for me, it achieved a formal end to the violence. Um, I know forms of violence continue, but it's certainly a really different level of scale and nature um, than it was when I grew up in. I think it's easy to dismiss that, but it's a huge thing. And actually, very few peace processes have achieved it quite as well. And for me personally, I would say to you know, hold on to that every day. It's a really valuable thing. Um, And of course, there's so many things it hasn't achieved, but that itself vindicates much of what was done in that time. Secondly, I think the human rights element was important and it was new to what had been tried before. When I worked in human rights, we used to sort of say, aside from the constitutional question, the important issue is, is everybody treated fairly? 
I still feel that the human rights framework and the one that was included, and if some of it had been better completed and implemented, and it still could be, it would provide a framework um, within which people's you know, fears of discrimination and domination, which are still there, would could continue to be addressed. And of course, new communities will have new fears at different times. And I still feel that fundamentally justice and fairness is, um, and trying to deliver it and trying to deliver forms of social justice is the main way um, that societies um, are peaceful. It's interesting, there's a huge global peace index and it counts, um, it counts level of economic. It, it was actually set up by economists because um, connections between social justice and fairness and economic well-being are so closely related to whether societies are peaceful in terms of violence or not. So I think those were really the achievements of it. It did set up a framework of government that was complicated, but that government, I think, at periods has worked better than we were, had hoped and at periods worse. Yeah. Um, and I think it also set and train a set of processes that have been really difficult to complete, but were the right process to, to set up. It did address the right building blocks for peace. Hmm. So on the whole, I would give it a pretty good rating. But, you know, we all continue to market. <laughs> and, um, uh, and on the whole, as a global peace effort, um, I would say it has been as good or better than most. But we have had a lot of things in place that other countries don't have. We had existing institutions. We had a framework in which laws were largely, um, you know, accepted and respected. Lots of societies just don't have that kind of infrastructure that we have. I know that in your writing about um, peace and in your writing about um, public discussions about um, places of conflict, that you advocate both um, the use of tech, but also highlight that the use of tech can never um, replace the possibility of face-to-face -face encounters and the capacity for people around the negotiation table to, to be in the same room as each other. Where would you see that? Why, why are these two things um, such strong emphases for you? You know, I am... Um in ways a researcher and um, say our data, that's about providing better comparative information to people um, to make use of, to try to fashion their own exits from conflict. So um, the power of computing, the power of how we're able to gather and do that data, all of it's moving on almost month to month. How we can link, for example, you asked me was the Belfast Agreement successful or not? Well, a really key indicator of success even though it's a very negative form of peace, it's just one measure, but is reduction of deaths and conflict. Well, actually, there's really good data out there in reduction of deaths and conflict. So we can now, across those 150 processes, crunch and connect our data with data on deaths and conflict and understand which agreements were implemented well. And then we can look into that. I think for me, tech provides a level of capacity that we can't have through manual work and it adds on to that. And I do believe that while we can't, while processes are very much controlled by politics, um, good information can support them, um, quick access to creative ideas, to understanding how people have done things in other contexts um, can really inform people. And it's surprising to me still, having sort of lived and breathed peace processes now for so many years in my research, Many people who are entering these processes, and if you think about, say, armed actors, they have had no connection with comparative data, with understanding, and they approach their process as if it's the only process in the world, the first process in the world. And 
they don't know what a process can do and what it can't. I work a lot with women's groups and they're often being asked for input and they say, well, what can we ask for of this process? Or we want to see sexual violence against women changed. Is that something the process can deliver? Comparative knowledge is really useful to that. So I really believe in tech as an enabler. It has. It also has been very key. And it was interesting, we bought Zoom about a year before the pandemic. And of course, everyone's using it now. But we did a lot of work um, with, uh, with people in Yemen. And for example, many of the people with creative and good ideas for that conflict who are really activists about trying to resolve it are displaced from the country and scattered to the four winds in different countries. So things like being able to meet virtually and talk is really vital. And also being able to keep connection with people in the country is really vital and can only really be done through tech solutions. So there's a lot of logistic issues around safety, around diasporas being displaced where even though it doesn't grab the whole of the community, because of course there's resource implications to who has access to tech and cultural implications. Um, women, for example, um, have much less access to mobile phones and often a mobile phone in a family will be controlled and held by the man. Limitations, well actually, uh, the jury's really out on whether trust can be built across tech platforms. So you can transact your business and you can get information. But trust is really fundamentally at some deep level about relationships. And when you're in these processes, and in fact, sometimes it can be hard as a researcher to even write them up because the real story of why something happened is, well, there was baggage between these two actors. There was this and this, and it wasn't just about the conflict. It was complicated by all sorts of things and personal things that had happened between them. Can we, and I think we're seeing this in our own relationships as we're trying to do social things over Zoom. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. Yeah. Um, can we actually build trust over technology? We can build some, but but can we, you know, at the end stage of Brexit negotiations, they talked about Boris Johnson's going to look Ursula von Leyen in the eye. They're going to go stare eyeball to eyeball, and that's somehow going to make the difference. Well, what if they can't stare each other eyeball to eyeball? It's eyeball to eyeball across Zoom. Is that going to work the same way? So we do still feel that trust is something that's very interpersonal relationship, and it's about it's about looking the person in the eye. It's about shaking their hand. It's about it's about making a gesture towards them that might be. It's about where you sit around the table. These things all matter in negotiations. Karimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Karimila supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. These remotely recorded podcasts come from our kitchen table to yours because we can't be together in the same room talking about these important topics in this important year. So if you want to take the conversation further, we've got some discussion and reflection questions for you and a full transcription too. You can find those on our website, corimila.org slash podcast or linked through our show notes.
You're listening to the Corrie Miller podcast and I'm Padraig Tuma. With me today is Professor Christine Bell, who is Professor of Constitutional Law at Edinburgh University, among many other accolades and accreditations. Christine, I'd like to talk to you about Brexit. You gave us um, a nice transition into that just by mentioning Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen just there. Um, we've seen the Belfast Agreement very much back to the fore as a result of Brexit and fears that leaving the EU could undermine peace terms. Um, do you think that um, the Good Friday Agreement is going to get important attention in this Brexit era now? Well, yes. I mean, the the Brexit deal that has been agreed is a really complicated one. It's what happens if you negotiate over positions and try to square them through lots of niggly little rules. Um, so it's a very imperfect deal. And of course, the protocol creates an extra layer of complications. Um, so I feel we're probably now into a very tricky period of about five years of figuring out those regulations and seeing do they come under pressure to change and how. And I think it's actually quite unpredictable what happens both for the UK as a whole and for Northern Ireland. Um, how does that affect the agreement? Well, we have to decide. At some point also there is a need to... It's very tricky because nobody wants to roll back from the agreement by undermining it. But at some point, we also probably have to cross new Rubicons into new understandings of how we self-govern, who we want ourselves to be, um, how that translates into institutionalisation. Um, and I sort of have had a sort of deep instinct for some time that those conversations aren't maybe being framed that way and it might be useful if there was an attempt to say, how would we reimagine the future now? Um, I saw a tweet that you put out to Edwin Poots of the DUP where you said, um, so what were DUP thinking of when A, you supported Brexit and B, voted down every other available proposition for a Brexit without an Irish sea border in a context where your votes would have made the difference? Um, you know, during the period of time when the DUP were the kingmakers um, in the Westminster um, Parliament, um, there was uh, much more attention given to the DUP than in previous years, it seemed to me. Um, what was your critique and what were you inviting um, Edwin Poots and maybe his party to think about? Well, to me, from day one, there were three things that different groups of people wanted. People wanted no border between the North and the South. They wanted no border between the North and mainland UK. And the UK government very strongly and very clearly, right from May through to Johnson, said they didn't want to be in the single market and customs union. Now, actually, those three things logically can therefore not all be achieved. And this was the basic logic of the agreement. At least this is not a matter of anyone's political view. It's not a matter of their preferences. Those three things cannot be achieved because once you have rules in UK on trade diverging from rules in the EU, somebody has to monitor those rules. So what if that was going to be the position, then there was either going to be a border in the Irish Sea or a border, the land border between the north and the south or both. Theresa May essentially pulled back from the position of the no customs union, although she didn't call it it, it was going to be a form of de facto customs union. That then meant that you could not have a border, you didn't have to have the border up the Irish Sea or along the land border. So it seemed to me if you wanted a harder, if you wanted Brexit to be implemented, as I would understand the DUP to have wanted, 
then you had to decide really whether you were going to put your eggs in the no customs union single market basket or the no borders anywhere basket. Um, and actually they decided to put their eggs into the no single market or customs union. I can't really see that that was a decision that was in the interests of people in Northern Ireland, but that's my political position. Um, I just, but it's also just a factual appraisal. It seems to me it would have been better for people in Northern Ireland had neither of the sea or the land border existed, but that would have required using your leverage to try to push for the whole of the UK to stay in the single market and customs union. Um, and that would have been a softer Brexit, would have in many ways have made uh, Brexit more illogical, um, which I think was the resistance to it from people that supported Brexit. But it would have given us what Norway had. And if you talk to people in Norway, although they see themselves as rule takers, they like the bit of sovereignty that they have from being independent, and yet they value the interconnection. So I think it would have been a fair delivery of Brexit. I think what was not really sensible was to say that you would keep on trying to achieve all three of those things when they clearly weren't logically available. So to me, there was a bit of probably from many parties, I wouldn't just say target the DUP here, there was a bit of what we like to call magical thinking, that things could be achieved simultaneously, which could was very clear couldn't actually be achieved simultaneously. Where do you see signs of, of connection um, when it comes to questions to do with Brexit and British-Irish relationships and um, uh, UK-EU relationships? Where do you see signs of connection or trust possible? You know, I think it's I think it's really interesting that nobody actually is really thinking or talking about that. There's a little bit around the periphery and, and part of it, of course, we might be, except we're still in the middle of the pandemic and it's so difficult and it's creating its own trust issues in lots of really complicated ways. Um, so, but to me, what I feel I've seen in Brexit, much more sort of being situated here in Scotland and um, a lot of my work means that until the pandemic, I was in London at least one day a week um, around Whitehall, um, is that they almost created pro and anti-Brexit as almost like an ethnic identity where it tied up with lots of views. So whether you were a Remainer or a Brexiteer and it was almost like there was a binary choice and of course lots of people don't know what they think or, or have ambivalent feelings about these things, almost became like an identity politics like we had seen and understood in Northern Ireland. And what I would observe about that is that these things are very fast to create and to become quite rigid and they're really, really hard to undo. I mean, remember that 39 peace agreements to get out of conflict, um, <laughs> how many years that takes. Um, so to me, the UK, I, I really think what would have been ideal to have happened after Brexit was it was clear that there was no proposition for what Brexit had been before triggering Article 50. If there had been some vision to say, we're now going to have some sorts of public hearings about what people want about this and to construct, to consult and understand what the vision is and to bring the country into one place. That then might have then held the politicians into some mandate, but it, it was clear that there was sort of incoherent thinking around it and there was no mechanism and commitment to actually engage people and people who voted for Brexit out of absolute need and desperation that the issues, and we had seen this in the Scottish referendum too, communities and constituencies that had never voted before 
that disrupted what pollsters thought because they got out of their seat to vote because they felt so strongly um, about how they were being treated. Well, you know, that's a set of needs that need to be addressed and it's unclear that Brexit addresses them. To me, we need to sort of start to still need, there's still a need in the UK to go underneath, not in a silly way about saying why did people vote, but just go underneath and say, you know, how do how fundamentally is the country to be pulled together? What are the different experiences of living in the country and whether your needs are able to be achieved, you know, whether your life chances can be achieved in this country, because it's it's a very divided country in lots of ways. So I think that that needs to happen. So I don't see where that I mean, you asked me a positive thing, and I think it's very striking how much that's not really part of the public conversation in the UK. Whereas it probably still is a little bit in Northern Ireland because we still see reconciliation as a thing that always has to actively happen. Well, I think yeah. it's really needed in the UK as a whole now, and I don't really see where it's happening and how it's happening. When it comes to questions to do with um, what's called the United Kingdom, I always find it interesting that kind of over the last few hundred years, the United Kingdom has changed, you know, every hundred years or so. A hundred years ago, it was the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, you know, um, and that, you know, then it became the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So this thing called the United Kingdom has changed. Do you think we're on the cusp of another change? Well, yes, I definitely do. There's an unraveling of the constitutional fabric of certainties as to how devolution was working and held together. And that's been felt just as strongly in Wales and Scotland as it is in Northern Ireland, but it happens slightly different ways in all three regions. And... Um, so there is going, I say so certainly there's going to be a change because um, there will have to be an addressing of that. What that change is, is less certain. I don't think it's inevitable that the UK breaks up or loses any one of those parts. But neither do I think that just pushing on and assuming it all automatically stabilises. I don't think that's the situation either. So I think the UK as a whole will whether it wants to or not, become increasingly embroiled in a constitutional conversation about about the different parts of it, um, how it hangs together, what is it that justifies the United Kingdom as United Kingdom? Um, is that justification being borne out in what people are delivered in practice? I mean, this is a really live question in Scotland at the minute. It seems to be a live question in Wales. And of course, it has its own dimensions in Northern Ireland. So I think no, the country has to actually explicitly address that. What would you think a time frame for another possible independence vote in Scotland might look like, whatever the outcome of it might be? But what would you say the time frame might be? Very hard to know. There's, I think it, there's so many ifs and buts. If there's a win in the next elections, there will be a strong pressure. Um, the polls for the first time in the history of the UK are showing a quite clear majority for Scottish independence for some time now. Um, there's a brilliant, one of my favourite judgments in the world is actually Canadian Supreme Court judgment in the case of Quebec. And it was a very, very smart judgment. They were asked, you know, can Quebec secede or not? And they said, well, actually, if one section of Canada doesn't consent and, and, and democratically shows that it doesn't consent, there is a requirement of the central state to have the conversation. And I think that's got to be right, really, doesn't it? If there's a 
strong view that the country is not working, there has to be a conversation or else a chance um, of people to express that wish. So I think I think Scotland, this issue will continue to be dominant um, for the next couple of years. And I think it's likely that there is a referendum. Just when and how that would come about, I'm not sure. I see so many. As a lawyer, I can just see all the complications. <laughs> I, I don't think any of them are easy to come about. And what about Ireland? Um, you know, what do you see? The Do you see that Brexit has sped up a conversation about, you know, a border poll, basically a referendum in both jurisdictions about the possibility of a unifying or a new or a shared Ireland? Or do you think that that is continuing to be a long way in the, in the future? What are the different things that you bring to that conversation? I think it has certainly completely changed the conversation. I mean, that's a, another cop-out answer. Um, <laughs> It has, you know, up until now, I've said it has sped it, it has sped it up. Um, I suppose my worry is that, in a sense, um, the practical fallout of the Brexit arrangements and the protocol uh, mean that it's probably going to be um, complicated in ways that we haven't anticipated. So, and I suppose the other big factor is austerity. So it just um, we seem to be in for a mind-boggling crisis financially across really across um, Western Europe. So again, that's never really that good for trust, for um, reaching good solutions, for reaching win-win solutions on all sides. And in many ways, we can see Brexit and things as fallout from the last round of austerity that we did. It's never been good for Northern Ireland austerity. It's always been easier to, to sort things when people have been doing well. You know, so I, I kind of, I think there's a need for people who, care about these things and are active uh, to really in the middle of being exhausted from everything dig deep into their resources and say I suppose people in Northern Ireland in particular are really creative politically and creativeness wise and you're a good example Patrick <laughs> and a good example of those things coming together but that deep political imagination that's really about who do we want to be and how can we become it? There's going to be a need to find some place and way to have that conversation and not just be buffeted through from one crisis to the next. Because I, I just think we are in a situation now where I, I, I mean, it maybe sounds pessimistic, but I don't see Brexit or COVID as really having an end point. Um, I think this is a very hard thing for us to get our heads around. So Brexit the way it's designed, again, without going into it technically, it's going to be micro-negotiation out of after micro-negotiation all of the time. So we will be still doing Brexit for the next 10 years at least. And actually, with the way variants are heading and the vaccination, the slightly, my slightly depressing take is that one way or another, we will be managing COVID and its legacy for the next period. And I think that makes things like referendums, constitutional status and the terrain we're in. I think it's just a really different space than we've ever been in before in Northern Ireland or wherever. I would really like to see that global leaders say, you know, the point at which every country is in massive debt to each other. Can we not just redecide what money and debt is and how to do the whole economy a different way? You know, there can be a liberating part, part to, to crisis of saying maybe we can reshape how we do these things. In Northern Ireland, 
if everything's working badly, is there a completely new way of coming together and thinking about it? I mean, I don't know what it is and whether there is or not, but I think I think the world we're in, and to be quite frank, all bets are off. Yeah, um, and that's dangerous, but it's also a positive opportunity. Um, kind of as a final reflection and maybe a question in here too, I'm intrigued with how you are so um, uh, deep in the scholarship about global peace deals and all the different aspects of that and the legal and constitutional matters within that. But you regularly emphasise um, human relationship and imagination as being vital to, to those things. Human relationship and imagination can sometimes be seen like, you know, the soft side of um, of such important negotiations about war and important negotiations about trade and um, sovereignty. But you elevate um, the place of these um, aspects of um, capacity for human relationship and um, imagination so much. Um, is that new for you or has that always been something that's been clear to you? Um, well, I would say I flip-flopped, right? So whenever I was like a teenager, I was like, you know, everyone should love each other and if we make relationships, it'll sort everything. And then I just lost faith with that because actually from me going out of my comfortable middle-class life, you know, across town to different schools and actually even going two miles down the road where I crossed an invisible border from south to west Belfast, what I could see was people had really different experiences of life and institutions and that this completely coloured and made reasonable a lot of a lot of our different assumptions. So it seemed to me that actually we didn't need to just address relationships, but we needed to come to some agreement and some better, you know, we needed to, you know, change. So I saw police as very protective in my life. And I felt very worried about people I knew were policemen. People on the other side saw them as the enemy. It was clear that we needed to address policing. And it wasn't just about becoming best friends behind the scenes, wasn't going to sort that. So as a lawyer, I probably looked more at institutions of fairness. Of course, I always believed it was about both, even in all phases of my life. Now, um, I maybe have a, a better, well, maybe it's not better. I just have maybe a different understanding of how they come together. And it's interesting actually talking to you about this, Padraig, because I, when I talk about imagination and relationships, I think, and political imagination, I see, I think the story we tell ourselves about who we are and whether we can find a collective way to tell a collective story, even about our differences, um, is really, really important. And I think the sort of ideas we have about what are possible um, shape action. So I think stories shape action and the stories we tell ourselves um, about how we're treated, about how we treat others really, really matter. And, you know, we've seen that, we've seen that recently say unfolding in the um, debacle around the states, whereby actually countries and whether they tip from democracy into authoritarianism, it sometimes can come down to a really thin line of not do you have the institutions do the institutions hold but do key people at key moments do the right thing or not do they have the sensibility that does the right thing and time and again i would have watched northern ireland where atrocities unfolded and actually because somebody maybe unexpected to say what they did said something peaceful at a key moment that it changed things in a positive way and similarly, we can all think of situations where somebody said something very inflammatory and it just spammed things in a different way. Well, that comes from people's sense of who it is they are 
what it is they want to build and be. So I, I kind of think that for me, the relationships and the structures come together quite fundamentally uh, around how, how do we want to relate to each other? How do we capture that in the institutions around us? And what sort of common commitments to just basic boring things like decency, valuing human life, valuing the rights of other people? How do those things become institutionalised, both in the institutions, but also in our ways that we deal with each other in a very interrelationship way? Because I suppose my feeling was that when I got to, you know, when I did all the cross-community stuff and saw other people, people actually mostly don't have a terrible problem relating to each other. If you take them out of their context and get them talking about things other than politics, I never saw a big problem there. The problem is when we go back into all these institutions and structures, um, they make things more complicated than that. So... So there's got to be some way to bring those together. And I think that is about finding a narrative and narratives of change and renewal and political, sort of political bottom common denominators. Professor Christine Bell, thank you very much for coming on the Corrie Miller podcast. Thank you. Our guest this week on the Corrie Miller podcast was Professor Christine Bell of Edinburgh University. Don't forget to listen right to the end when Christine reveals how Cambridge opened her eyes to many things, including the art of being brilliant at debates. Thanks for listening to the Corrie Miller podcast. I'm Padraig Otuma and I'll be back with another episode next week. The Corrie Miller podcast comes to you with the generous support of our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland, the Fund for Reconciliation of the Irish Government and the support of the Friends of Corrymeela who give monthly or annually. If you enjoy this podcast and have time to leave us five stars or a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would be delighted. And if you ever want to be in touch with us, you can email welcome at corrymeela.org. The Corrymeela podcast is a fun, fun production. The researcher and producer is Emily Rawling, and the podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. Could you tell us about a time when you felt foreign? Uh, Oh, yes. Actually, you know, the most stunning one was when I went to Cambridge. So I went as, you know, coming from a deeply, deeply religious community um, and family having a sense of a British identity and suddenly I went to sort of the heart of the British establishment and found out that they all thought I was Irish. I went with you know a sense of that I had lived a very privileged life as middle class and then I met people that really had money and they treated me as poor and I was sort of explaining to them no no I'm quite fine you know and then I would go to their houses and realize we were actually compared to them we were poor because actually I didn't really know or see anyone and there weren't that many people with that sort of wealth in Northern Ireland (laughs) there was a different class of old money um, and I didn't see it until about third year when I started more visiting people in the holidays in their home and you know thinking 
whoa, because we were all kicking around in jeans and stuff. But anyway, so I think for me, actually, whenever I, I got active in the student union and whenever I would speak, this is just one example, but they always sort of chose people's weak point, point and you had to speak through 15 minutes of people shouting stuff at you. And I didn't have a really obvious weak spot. So the thing that they would always shout for me was translate, translate because of my accent. And I mean, I laughed at it. So, so I would have to do 10 minutes of very posh English men, actually, boys, shouting, translate, translate, translate. And that was literally the first 10 minutes of any speech I made. Um, you know, I kind of laughed at it, but I didn't sort of feel too aggrieved. I felt, actually, this is good because they're not shouting, plonker, 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 which is shouting for another guy. Like, they were really shouting at me, foreigner, foreigner, foreigner. and. I sometimes think of that translate, 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 and think my whole life there was translating. And also I never realized how much the troubles affected me until I was living outside of them and realized, whoa, it's not normal. And the biggest the biggest time and ways I felt foreign was actually there would be these heated, heated disputes in the student union where I would feel, oh really, people shouldn't be fighting this way. And I think that's right. But also I, I remember one day thinking, but nobody's going to get killed at the end of it. Um, these people aren't going to go out and kill each other, even though they disagree every bit as as violently as in the student union of politics in Queens. And then I, I'd actually sort of been a bit flabbergasted about that. And I still actually felt the violent disagreement wasn't great <laughs> and, and there was a better way to do things. But it also made me see that you can have really, really, really full-on political disagreement and it doesn't have to lead to violence and death and actually maybe that shouldn't have been a huge surprise to me but it was uh, so that was the time I felt most foreign I felt like um, I was in a totally different culture people knew nothing of my background I couldn't read other people's backgrounds couldn't tell and actually they couldn't place me half as well like in Northern Ireland, people could place me almost down to my street by my accent and how middle class it was or wasn't. But in England, they all would have assumed I was working class because I had a regional accent. <laughs> well, um, the next time I hear you speak in public, um, Christine, I'm going to start shouting out, translate in my best English accent. <laughs> <laughs>